Hey, listeners, it's Dave Berta, producer Adam Rosenhardt, asking you a huge favor. From May 18th to June 17th, we're asking our listeners to do a little survey for us so we can learn a little bit more about you and find the right kinds of advertisers to join the network, which helps power all the podcasts on the network. If you visit albertapodcastnetwork.com slash survey, it would do us a huge favor if you filled out that survey. And if you do, there's even an incentive. You could choose to be entered into a draw to win one of three cash prizes of $100. You don't have to enter the draw, but it's definitely an option available to you. So albertapodcastnetwork.com slash survey. You'll be helping not only Dave Berta out a lot, but all the members of the Alberta Podcast Network. We are a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. So remember, to fill out that survey before June 17th, 2019, you could win one of three cash prizes of $100. Go to albertapodcastnetwork.com slash survey. Thanks. I'm Dave Cornway. I'm Brad LaFortune. And you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're recording this episode on Sunday, June 2nd, 2019, and we are joined by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. In this episode, we'll discuss the impact of Bill 2, the Orwellian titled An Act to Make Alberta Open for Business, which will lower the minimum wage for workers under the age of 18 who also happen to be students. Uh, The United Conservative Party government also introduced Bill 3, the Job Creation Tax Cut, which would lower the corporate income tax in Alberta from 12% to 8%. Do corporations really need the tax relief? And finally, after being interviewed by the RCMP, Attorney General Doug Schweitzer has finally caved to pressure and appointed a special prosecutor to handle the ongoing investigations into the 2017 United Conservative Party leadership race. Will this be more trouble for the UCP this summer? And we'll dive into the mailbag and answer some great questions from our listeners. But first, I'd like to introduce our special guest co-host for this episode. Welcome, Brad. Ah, thanks, Dave. It's good to be here. Hi, my name is Brad LaFortune. I'm the former chief of staff to the previous labor minister in the NDP government. Uh, so very excited to be here to talk about some of the recent uh, bills that have been introduced in the House that impact labor and working people in the province. Uh, before that, I worked in labor movement in the civil service. And uh, I'm really happy to be here uh, to chat. So thanks for having me on as a guest. Well, thanks so much. Thanks so much for being here, Brad. We're looking forward to this. Labor and Immigration Minister Jason Copping introduced Bill 2 in the legislature last week. Uh, the, As I said, the Orwellian titled An Act to Make Alberta Open for Business would lower the minimum wage from the current $15 per hour to $13 an hour for workers under the age of 18 who also happen to be students. The youth Quote, youth job creation wage uh, applies to the first 28 hours per week students work. It also applies to school breaks, which includes summer vacation, Christmas and winter holidays, and spring breaks for students. The rule applies to, the, the rule applies when a student is attending school, which is if you're under 18 is basically almost everyone. Uh, employers will be able to retroactively lower the wage of students currently making at least $15 an hour even if they were hired prior to the regulation taking effect, unless the student is in a collective agreement with a fixed wage. 
If employers choose to lower the wage for a student employee, they must notify the employee in advance of the first pay period when the lower wage would take effect. Well, how generous of them to notify them before they cut their wage. Uh, so <laughs> this is something that Jason Kenney has talked about for a while. We, we heard about it, I think in February, he'd announced he was planning, if, if the UCP formed government, they were planning on, on rolling back the minimum wage for, uh, for younger workers. He also said, uh, that they would look into rolling back, rolling back the uh, the minimum wage for workers in the hospitality industry. I think people who served alcohol uh, was what they what they were looking at. Um, I guess, Brad, my question to you is is, I mean, this seems to be a very specific group of people they're targeting. They they, they didn't roll back the minimum wage as a whole, which I think a lot of conservatives and a lot of uh, uh, business advocacy groups probably would were were advocating for. What do you think it means that they? targeted this specific group and why did they target the specific group to roll back the minimum wage? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I think first and foremost, it's important to uh, uh, recognize that, you know, Alberta before uh, 2016, when the first increase took place, had the lowest minimum wage in the country. And it also included a, you know, um, uh, a liquor server differential. So you're right, it's not something that's brand new. And in fact, across Canada, it was very common to have differentials a lot for youth. Uh, liquor servers as well. Um, to answer your question, Dave, I think that um, <laughs> it's funny. I, it, quite frankly, uh, it comes down to the fact that it's uh, it plays into the myth and the stereotype in Alberta and maybe in Canada generally that young people who are students and living at home um, are not in need of the same wages as people who are taking care of things like rents and bills and families and other, you know, financial uh, commitments that uh, that people who are, you know, taking care of themselves and families have to take care, care of. And that, you know, might be true for a lot of people who are 16, 17 years old. It's not true for everybody. And there are a lot of people out there, including a woman I was talking to a couple days ago who said, I moved out when I was 17, you know, it was a personal choice. And I was renting my own apartment basically overnight. And so to me, it was important to have employment that was able to you know, meet those needs. Um, and to take such a blanket approach and say that, you know, these are kids who are saving up for their first trip to Europe or their first car is, uh, it's a nice myth and it rolls off the tongue and I think it gets the head nod, but it's not really the case. So I think that it plays into that stereotype, which is good politically for them. And then also, um, I was been thinking about this a bit, and I was reading that Beaverton article, which is pretty hilarious, like the tiny hands, tiny rights uh, <laughs> campaign of the UCP. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, these are these are folks who aren't voting yet. Um, these are these are Albertans who you know are political in a lot of different ways, but don't have the vote, and they're not being engaged by government uh, or you know anybody really to get their opinions on things. And so it's it's kind of an easy place to go uh in the sense that i don't think you're gonna a lot of, get a lot of pushback i hope i'm wrong but um you know it's easier to target folks who don't have a voice so that's yeah. part of it too yeah yeah and it seems to me that like a lot of these a lot of people who would fall under this change a lot of young workers who would fall under this change uh i mean it's it seems like this is it's very much the ucp playing to uh, groups like Restaurants Canada. We saw Restaurants Canada at the announcement at the press conference announcing, which I thought was kind of funny the, the way where they announced it at a sports bar. Like I'm not sure if there were any yeah. any, like, any workers under 18 who were serving alcohol at the sports bar that they made the announcement uh, they made the announcement at. Yeah, I um, know that's a good point. Yeah, uh, but it seems like when you're talking about young workers who are perhaps in more precarious jobs, like in the fast food industry, 
um, that you're allowing employers like that to retroactively uh, just lower their wage from $15 to $13, basically saying, hey, on your next, next paycheck, you're, you're getting a lower wage. Now, not, not everybody under 18 is making the exact minimum wage, but it does have a, trick, it does have a ripple effect on, on, on what, what other people are getting paid as well. Absolutely. There's so many different interesting things that could happen in those specific workplaces and in this job market and food services where you have people who are over 18 working in the same environment. And then if you can pay 16, 15 through 17 year olds, uh, $13, um, that might have impacts on other employees who are over 18 as well in terms of, you know, job stability for those folks. It's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. So, um, yeah, I, I first round. Yeah, that's interesting. We we talked to those folks uh, over the past few years through Restaurants Canada. Uh, there was that press conference going into the campaign as well. Restaurants Canada had a, a big campaign they launched, and they've been in the era of government uh, when I was working there as well for several years. And it's no surprise they were standing with uh, with Kenny on this one too. They were probably very very happy with themselves. So, yeah. One of the things that I thought was interesting this week, so they introduced the minimum wage rollback bill, and then they introduced, like a few, two days later, they introduced the Red Tape Reduction Act. Mm -hmm. Now, looking at the, uh, looking at the, the, the minimum, the bill that includes the minimum wage rollback, uh, all the rules that are included in it seem to create, like, more what what the conservatives would call red tape uh, then would actually get rid of it. And it was funny because at the press conference, there was a reporter, I can't remember who asked who asked the question, but there was a reporter who asked the question basically like, well, how how are you going to enforce, like how does a, how does an employer recognize <laughs> recognize who's a student and who's not? Like if, if a student leaves school, for example, uh, does an employer have to all of a sudden start paying them $15 and who's going to enforce that? And they didn't really, I don't think the minister and the premier really had a convincing answer. Like maybe, maybe they hadn't really thought it out yet. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I was watching that press conference as well. And I think that you probably would have had dozens of employment standards officers watching it and just shaking their head too and yeah. thinking, oh my goodness, this is going to be a big mess to enforce um, because there's all sorts of complicated ways that people can be, you know, uh, part-time students or maybe they're coming in and out of school if they go to inner city high school or some other kind of you know program when they're coming back to school and they're over 18 are they still students and they're in high school but they're you know 19 years old and and who who's keeping track of all that that could be uh, a lot of work and, and very complicated really quickly yeah um, so it'll be interesting to see and you're right the the red tape reduction act is that what it's called that's um, what it's called uh it's like um it's a bit ironic yeah I like the Orwellian kind of like it's this whole this whole thing, right? Like they used to yell at us all the time for, you know, introducing bills like the Fair and Family uh, Fair and Family Friendly Workplaces Act, and it was just like that's not they're not it's unfair to employers and it's not family friendly because you're putting people out of work, whatever their argument was. And then of course governments do exactly the same thing. Uh, every government does. So the bill titles are very interesting. I uh, yeah, I read that bill quickly. The the red tape reduction one. It's just like obviously you create re regulations to uh, enforce um, how you're cutting regulations, and it's going to be a lot of work, and they're going to have to create like an entire entity to do it. And so, yeah, it's yeah, weird. Yeah, and I, I found it funny that the uh, or kind of ironic that the largest section of the uh, the red tape reduction bill was actually the section that allows the government to create more regulations, yeah. which, uh, which is thought is funny. And I mean, this is not the first, this is not the first time government has done something like this. Back yeah. when the Tories were in power, I think in the the early two thousands or mid two thousands, they created the uh, the 
restructuring yeah. and government efficiency ministry, which was also which was known uh, uh, as the Rage Ministry. Rage, yes, Rage. I remember and, that. And it was, I think, it was Luke Willette who was the uh, was the minister. And when he was he was constantly asked, the opposition had the field day with this because they no one actually knew. It was like they were throwing a bone to their supporters who wanted to decrease the size of government, uh, but they couldn't really like. Te couldn't really articulate what exactly they were doing in terms of actually reducing government, you know, the size the size of government. I think the, the ministry took took charge of uh, the supernet, which was already something another ministry was in charge of. Oh, supernet, and that continues to haunt government. But yeah, it was rage in the early two thousands, and it's not new. Uh, third parties like obviously CFIB, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, has been. Uh, beating this drum for years and kudos to them. It's been a pretty successful campaign with respect to, you know, its visibility and people knowing about it. Um, but in practice, or even in meetings, you talk to the CFIB reps and they come in and they're like, we want to see you reduce red tape by this amount in this, you know, number of years. There's too much red tape and it's really, you know, hampering investment and, um, costing a lot of money to businesses to conform to ever-changing regulatory regimes in the province, and it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more cumbersome. And then you ask, okay, well, what? Give us three top examples of regulations that you'd like to see just deleted from the books. And um, it's hard to get a clear answer. It's just an overall kind of concern for you know regulatory burden, but um, it's unclear exactly like what the specific things are that they'd like to. Uh, to see gone. And so I think it's going to be really tough to make good on that. I know that they said they're going to report back for what is it? Two, two like deleted or repealed for every one new regulation. Is that the, I, th I think the goal? That, yeah, I think that that was their initial goal. I think they've actually scaled it back and said they're starting one for one. Okay. Just to, to start. Uh, and this might be that they don't actually know. They might not actually know where to start. I mean, it seems like, I mean, like you said, this isn't really a, when you ask for examples, I mean, I'm sure people can talk about things they don't like about government, but mm -mm. when you're asking for specific regulations, it's it's it, it seems like it's less of a specific thing and more of like a general philosophical um, disagreement about the role of government in the economy and the mm -hmm. role of government in society. And it's a, it's a very, you know, these a lot of these groups have very different philosophical views, very conservative, very free market oriented views in terms of what the role of government should be. And that, that seems to be the kind of the, the more of the driving force. And I think like when you look at Jason Kenney's career, for example, his starting with the with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, the Alberta Taxpayers Association, it very much goes along those lines. And you can kind of see the, the tra trajectory of, of where this is coming from. I agree. I mean, look at the blue panel, the people who represent the, the blue panel, who's going to come back and report on the state of the economy and how to give it some rocket fuel to quote Trump. Um, it's the it's the usual suspects and the people that are being engaged are you know go back to to Ken's days with CTF and um, it's uh, it's a fairly focused and uh, I would say obvious group of people who are going to give the answers that uh, they want to hear as a government and so when it comes to red tape yeah I mean they can point to things like in red tape reduction the one thing I can imagine think of actually going back to those meetings with people from CFIB and CTF were like you look at the regulatory regime in Australia when it comes to energy development and the number of days from application to approval um, is on average shorter by, you know, let's say it was months compared to Alberta. Um, and so they could identify problems relative to Alberta system. Um, but, uh, but then again, getting to the specifics is really hard. And so it's just kind of like a, a frustration and this ideological sort of, uh, you know, uh, 
um, disagreement with the idea that you know regulations are good to keep people safe and to make sure that there are fair playing rules for everyone, both individuals and employers, and uh, that that's uh, that's a good thing, <laughs> arguably. So, so we we have a, a government that clearly clearly is taking a more of a neoliberal free market approach to how government operates and the, and the role of government in the economy and the role of government in society. Uh, and we have, and the basically a, a lot of what, what the UCP is doing when they, they talk about the, the summer of repeal or, or is it the spring of relief or, or, or renewal is what, what they're trying to rebrand it as now. It's less of a sledgehammer and more of a, I don't know, carpenter's hammer uh, or a finishing carpenter's hammer is what they're, doing, they're trying to make it look like. Uh, so, the, so I guess the question is, is as, you know, and, I mean, it, it's got to be tough for the NDP right now, uh, sitting in the opposition benches, watching the UCP basically try to dismantle a lot of the key projects, uh, the key programs that the UCP, uh, that the NDP implemented over the past four years. So I guess, I mean, the, the question, and I, I've been trying to reflect on this is how, how, as the opposition, how should the NDP respond, you know, in general, but even specifically when you're talking about uh, the the uh, the cuts to minimum wage for workers under the age of 18 or who are students? Right. Um, well, it's interesting. I think I think there's a lot of frustration in the opposition uh, ranks because you have people uh, who, well, I mean, you know, the premier and leader of the opposition, former premier and leader of the official opposition, uh, the former health minister. Uh, the former economic development trade minister, the former finance minister, the former labor minister, uh, the former education minister, and the list goes on. A very, um, very hardworking, um, well-meaning, talented uh, folks who were in charge of some pretty big files and changes, huge files and changes over the past four years. Um, and now they have to sit there and watch it be undone. Um, I don't think there's any place they'd rather be because these are all people who are, you know, uh, very committed to the process and to representing their constituents and to trying to fight back and, and you know, make the case somehow um, to maybe shame the government or, or or make them see the potential political risk in some of the bigger uh, items that they've committed to, whether in their platform or just because we know what uh, a conservative like Jason Kenney wants to do because he's a true believer in the neoliberal program. So I think I think the opposition needs to um, uh, you know, approach this first session, and this is what they have been doing, uh, as an opportunity to uh, organize themselves uh, and uh, get used to the role of what it is to be opposition. And I think that's about as much of, as having like good research and uh, being able to say that you know corporate tax cuts don't work. Here are the reasons why in the House, uh, in in press releases, and in you know responses. As it is about organizing and outreach um, with communities who are frustrated and maybe a bit surprised by the speed uh, and degree of change, speed of change and degree of change that Kenny's government is moving uh, in this first session. I think there's a lot of Albertans and all of groups who are maybe raising their eyebrows, maybe they voted UCP, 55% of the, the voters did, but maybe people are like open to hearing um, a little bit about, you know, what the opposition would do uh, uh, differently. And I think that has to do with with outreach and organizing a little bit. So generally, that's got to be the approach. In the House, I think they're doing a good job. Um, I'm really impressed with Christina Gray, 
uh, my former boss. So I'm a bit biased. Best boss I've ever had. <laughs> Saying that as a labor guy is maybe a bit weird, but honestly, she's she's incredibly talented, very focused and hardworking. And I think that she did a good job in the minimum wage debate between 2015 and 2019 to say, listen, this is about basic fairness. If you work full time, you should be able to take care of yourself and your family. And so we should be talking about living wages uh, not minimum wages, uh, and uh, and she really shifted that conversation. I think successfully, and she's done a good job in opposition by being focused. Um, she's doing her homework. She's reaching out to the right people in labor movement and young people. They had a really great voice. I think uh, the day after the bill was introduced, or shortly after, a sixteen-year-old worker who basically said, "Listen, I work as hard as my colleagues, and my coworkers who are over eighteen. Why should I make less um, in a few weeks? Um, I'm doing the same work." it should be the same pay and she was really compelling. And so I think they're starting to do that work of good outreach with people who are those third party voices that are not politicians and people maybe believe a little bit more readily because they see their daughter or their neighbor saying, you know, this is unfair. Um, and so they're starting to do that work and they're doing it pretty well, I think. But yeah, you're right. It's gotta be very, very frustrating to to be there in the house and watch your work be undone. I, I was almost shedding tears, you know, and I'm I was just there kind of helping things along when I worked for the labor minister and I don't have to sit in the house and, and, and watch it every day. It's, it's gotta be, it's gotta be tough for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think someone like, I mean, it, it, it's definitely a, a tough, I mean, w watching, watching the program being dismantled, but also uh, adjusting to life in the opposition benches. And I, I mean, I think that yeah. in, a, in a lot of ways, the NDP as a party and as a movement is, is, is very well suited for the opposition, like very well in, Al in Alberta, very comfortable in the opposition traditionally. I mean, aside from four years over the past, from 2015 to 2019, it's been an opposition party. But when you look at the MLAs who are in the NDP caucus right now, uh, only three of them have ever been in the opposition before, but ma but many of them have been cabinet ministers. So you, they're in a position where they're many of them are very well informed on the, on the issues that they're facing as critics. I think someone like Christina Gray, who is now the labor critic uh, and who was the labor minister, is in a unique position where she knows the file like the back of her hand. Uh, mm -hmm. But getting used to being in opposition, uh, it, it's going to be interesting to watch, not just not just Christina Gray, but but the entire caucus, NDP caucus, seeing who 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 stands out and who becomes the, you know, the who, who excels at, at the role, mm -hmm. their, their roles in opposition. Absolutely. I'm really fascinated to see what's going to happen over the summer with, uh, with the opposition caucus. So, yeah, we had... Well, that's right. We had three people, so it was, you know, four, four people going into 2015 election and then formed a majority government. And so you have three of them have come back. Brian Mason, of course, retired. So they know what it's like to be in opposition. But I'm sure that even, you know, for someone like Darren Billis, the former EDT minister, MLA for Beverly Clareview, uh, after four years of being minister, uh, you get used to having resources that you don't have anymore when it comes yeah. to staff um, who can do research you know, um, with you uh, as you're thinking about things, an entire department whose job it is to you know, um, help you develop policy ideas and then execute them once you have. Um, I was talking to him the other day and a few others who were saying like, I'm gonna make friends with the librarians again at the legislature library so that I can <laughs> So I can do research again. Um, so they're they're thinking about how to how to DIY, um, you know, all the kinds of things that they're going to have to do. And I think that a lot of the new MLAs are going to be um, uh, uh, they're going to be they're going to be uh, well served by watching what people like you know Rachel Notley and Darren Billis and and Sarah Hoffman and and David Egan do. Um, and because you have to be a self starter, I mean, it's just. 
there's so much to do from outreach in your constituency to opposition research when you have a credit portfolio and everything in between thinking about um, how to balance all of those uh, those uh, those commitments is is pretty challenging and it doesn't come with a great manual so it'll be interesting to see who takes to it naturally for sure I've been impressed by a few people um, and obviously it's just starting, but the summer will be interesting for sure to see who kind of gets out there outside of the federal building and really engages with the community and comes back with some good ideas. Yeah, uh, one of the interesting things I've been, I mean, the, that I've been looking at with the, just the the composition of the new legislature is, so most of the, most of the NDP MLAs are incumbents. I think they only have three new MLA, three rookie MLAs. So Janice Irwin, Jasmine Diol, and uh, Rocky Pancholi. Uh, from all from Edmonton who were elected <clears throat> pardon me, in 2019. Uh, but overall, I mean, the, the UCP caucus is very new. Uh, I think I, I looked at the at the total of the total legislature that all, pardon me, I think I looked at all the MLAs and out of 87, I think only there were only seven who were elected before the 2015 election. So in terms of like institutional memory and experience, like it's it's still relatively a relatively new group. There's there are quite a few MLAs who are serving their second just now serving their second term, but uh, I don't think we've seen this kind of turnover uh, in the legislature for a long time. And I really I, I will find it interesting over the summer and going into the fall how that could potentially impact the culture of the legislature, how things operate inside, and how the MLAs kind of um, work together and 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 uh, yeah how they work together. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. I, yeah, that's a really good point, David. Like, I, I haven't been paying attention to committees yet. Uh, for example, when you have those spaces um, and that work that brings uh, opposition and government MLAs together, um, I am interested to see if people actually stop thumping their desks and, and some of those, you know, changes that uh, our new premier want to bring to the legislature that seem basically like making him feel more at home in Alberta, since he's used to the House of Commons in Ottawa. Um, no disrespect, but I, I think he, he certainly likes the, the particular traditions and decorum of the House of Commons more than he likes uh, being an opposition leader in Alberta. And it may be just sort of made him uncomfortable to hear people, you know, thumping their desks a little bit, which I find interesting. And that's just one example of things that he wants to change, including the process and the, the kind of way that private members bills and, mm -hmm. and business is going to be heard and will, you know, go through the legislature, if at all. Um, so yeah, it, it'll be interesting. And I think, I think it will mean, you know, in the government caucus that you'll have, and this is no surprise, a very disciplined, uh, group of people as a result of them being new and wanting to, you know, learn from experience and you don't have a ton of experience and you have a guy, a former federal cabinet minister who is one of, you know, a small group of lieutenants for Stephen Harper, who really knows his business. Like he just, he loves being in the house. I, I, I remember watching him when it was his first question period and um, in opposition before the election. And, uh, you know, like I'm, I, you have to admit he's, he's, he's very polished in that setting. And so I think he'll be, he'll be very good at sort of like leading the, the caucus and, in uh, you know legislative process and and the sort of things that he wants to see inside of the house for sure, the opposition uh, again I think has been doing a good job uh, so far and they had a great week last week. Uh, minimum wage. I heard from a friend of a friend uh, who knows one of the staff in the labor minister's office 
uh, who said that, you know, uh, they had a hellish week um, after they introduced Bill 2. Um, so that, that I think is a testament to the opposition making the case that uh, this is something the government should hear about, even if they didn't want to talk to 17-year-old uh, student workers, um, yeah. those workers should take it upon themselves to to call into the office, and they've been doing that. And so they've they've had a good approach to making house uh, issues broader issues outside of the ledge. And so that's a big problem too. Like you always hear about, like the the old disease, the dome disease, and it was coined by probably Ralph Klein, um, who's a great retail politician. Yeah. Um, and it's 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 easy to get distracted by the drama of the legislature. Um, because you're working there every day. I can tell you, like, I just thought it was the center of the universe when the house yeah. was in. I thought that the legislature was the center of the universe for four years. Um, and I always knew it wasn't, but, you know, you get distracted by it because it's very exciting um, yeah. when you're there. And so I think the opposition has done a good job. Last week was a good example of them not getting too distracted by writing questions and having the perfect moment where they get someone on their heels uh, in question period. Because other than you, Dave, and maybe me when I'm not too busy and a handful of other people, uh no one's really watching no, um, exactly. the the question period so uh so it's important to remember what happens outside of it and connect things inside of the house to what's happening outside of the house and why people should care so yeah it'll be interesting to see um how things shape up for sure i don't know have they decided what they're going to do with the, the the private members business like is that I, I don't. I don't think they've. The Jason Nixon, the government house leader, introduced a whole bunch of amendments to the standing orders, and I don't think it's passed yet. Uh, but there was quite a bit of debate, and I expect there will be continued debate. What one of the things that that really frustrates me about the Alberta legislature, and I won't spend too much time on this because I could spend a whole podcast talking about this, is the amount of control that the executive branch has over the legislative branch, oh, yeah. uh, like the. Like we we have a parliamentary system, but we really elect a president kind of kind of thing. So the the legislature is basically a servant of of the executive in for all intents and purposes. Um, and taking away the or, or limiting or changing the rules around private members bills to make it more difficult for for regular MLAs who aren't in cabinet or aren't in the government or, or basically who aren't in cabinet because technically the the government are cabinet ministers and the back government backbenchers are in the well, in the government caucus, but they're not actually technically part of government. Uh, making it harder for them to introduce legislation is, or introduce private members' bills, uh, I think is a very bad idea. Um, even the system that currently exists now, where MLAs have to put their name in a draw, and then if their number gets picked, they get to introduce, introduce a private members' bill that may or may not ever make it past first reading. Uh, I, I think that, I, th I think it's absolutely crazy that we, we have an, a legislative system in, in Alberta where an MLA might serve a full four-year term and not have a chance to introduce a private member's bill. Um, when you go back, and, and I, I'm not sure what, I have to look, do a little bit of research and look into when these, these particular standing orders were introduced, but when you go back like 30 years, you'd have like dozens of private member's bills that were introduced. And I mean, I'm not sure what, what the rules were around it back then. Uh, there might've been problems with the rules back then as well, but it seemed like there were a lot more opportunities for actual normal MLAs to introduce private members bills. Um, and I, I think that's probably where we, where, where we should go if we want a healthy, healthy legislative democracy in this, in this province. Uh, but I just, I don't see it going that way. I think the tra trajectory has been for the, you know, it's not just the UCP thing. It was with the NDP as well. And the previous mm. conservative government uh, was very much the direction was very much more of an executive controlled legislature. Yeah, I, I, I agree with, with that. And I think 
that only you're right maybe we could come back to it another time and talk about legislative process for a for a whole podcast or a series because you can geek out over it for a long time but i just wanted to say really quickly so i remember how frustrating it was working in opposition in caucus with uh, a fellow researcher in 2012 or 2013 um and we we couldn't even get amendments passed to, to bills, right? Like, I mean, there was a whistleblower protection act that got introduced by Redford. And I think we, we were able to, we introduced something like, you know, 18 or 25 amendments, all of them got shot down. And so in the context of that frustration as, as opposition caucus staff for the NDP opposition, uh, my, my friend and former colleague, Keith Gardner, um, was able to uh, have an amendment introduced by an opposition member that he wrote with them and it was passed and we we had a party I think we like we went for beers afterwards because we passed an amendment um, as an opposition caucus and uh, and that says a lot about the ability for you know private members and, and new ideas to be you know inserted into the government's agenda and how frustratingly difficult it is to do it and I think you're right it's changing probably for the worst in the sense it's going to be harder and harder for private members to uh, to really make change through the legislative process going forward. The Dave Berta Podcast is also made possible in part by the Edmonton Public Library. And if you haven't already, you need to check out Overdue Finds. It's a podcast created by EPL, hosted by Bryce Crichton and Caroline Land. And on this podcast, they discuss things like movies, music, books, pretty much any sort of popular culture and media you can think of, and maybe even some you've never heard of before. You can find out all about what you can find at Edmonton Public Libraries, and this pod comes out every two weeks. So if you're thinking of maybe supplementing your Dave Berta listening with some other great pod, you need to check out Overdue Finds. You can find the show at epl.ca slash podcast, and everything else related to Edmonton Public Library at epl.ca. The Dave Berta podcast is also made possible in part thanks to ATB Financial. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about ATB Prosper. Whether you're saving for retirement, a major purchase, your child's education, or a rainy day, ATB Prosper helps you create a personalized investment plan to assist you in reaching your financial goals. It's easy to create, manage, and follow your progress through your customized digital dashboard. You can start investing with as little as $100 and make additional contributions to your portfolio of as little as $25. To find out more about how you can get started for that rainy day or retirement savings, visit atbprosper.com. So just as the UCP government announced they were going to cut wages for student workers under the age of 18, they also announced that they're going to give a big tax cut to big corporations. Uh, UCP introduced Bill 3, the Job Creation Tax Cut, which would lower the corporate income tax rate in Alberta from 12% to 8%. So Brad, do corporations really need the tax relief? No, corporations don't need the tax relief. I, I think uh, I think again. This is a we were talking a little bit about like the ideology of this new government and Jason Kenney being a true believer in the neoliberal and neoconservative approach to uh, economics and you know uh, governing the economy and responding to concerning things like you know persistent unemployment rates and uh, uh, you know um, sort of. Uh, you know, beleaguered investment in the province. And I think there's real concerns about, you know, how the economy has been performing relative to when we're in boom scenarios, but no, they do not need a corporate tax cut. Uh, uh, not to this degree. Uh, what is it? Four points over four years is where we're headed by 2021 or 
yeah, yeah. Be 8%, yeah. which I, is like, we all know this is going to be the lowest by at least a couple of points, I think, in North America. Um, and, uh, and so I don't know, what do you what do you think? How do you? How do you feel about it, Dave? Well, I mean, I, I, I actually, I, well, I think, I think corporate taxes should be higher, uh, higher than twelve percent. Uh, I mean, Alberta already has the lowest overall tax regime in Canada. Yeah. Um, I don't really know, and I mean, uh, ideologically, it makes sense what they're doing in terms of when you look at where they're where they're coming from. When you look at where Jason Kenney comes from, as a, you know, coming from his his roots as the Taxpayers Association president and spokesperson back in the early 90s like this is definitely within character uh and it's not surprising i mean they've already said, i think they said during the campaign that they wanted to lower the lower corporate taxes this isn't the first time that that the alberta government has tried to lower taxes corporate taxes to eight percent I, I did i did a bit of research and in 2002 uh revenue minister greg milchin from the progressive conservatives introduced the corporate tax amendment act uh, which set a target of eight percent for corporate the corporate income tax, but they never it only got to ten percent. They basically said like our goal is eight percent, and then they reduced it all the way down to ten percent. I think it was up at like I think it was actually up at like fifteen percent when they first implemented it in two thousand two. Um, so I mean overall, I don't giving a giving a this big of a tax cut to uh, big corporations will it create more jobs? Well, maybe in some places, probably not overall. Um, what concerns me the most about this tax cut is, and something that is something that concerns me overall about the Alberta government is our, the, the government's severe revenue problems. Um, right now we have a government that, I mean, for, well, right now for the past 60 years or 50 years, we've had a government that over relies, uh, in credit, has, has an incredible over-reliance on oil and gas revenues, on natural on oil and gas royalty revenues to fund the day-to-day -day operations of government. And we saw in the 2014 election, or pardon me, in 2014, before the 2015 election, we saw the pro and the international price of oil dropped. All of a sudden, we had the, the Alberta government had a $10 billion hole in their revenue stream. And that I mean that creates a that's a big problem. You're basically you're, you're using an unstable revenue source to fund the the public services, uh, education, healthcare, infrastructure, everything that, that Albertans depend on on a day to day basis. Uh, and one of my frustrations with the with the NDP government is that they don't think I don't think they really took the steps necessary to really solve that problem. Uh, and it's not it wasn't just the NDP's problem. It's a problem that's an Alberta problem that's existed for many decades. But but no one's really doing what it needs to no, no government has really done what it needs to in order to solve this revenue problem and what concerns me about the the ucp tax cut is, the, the corporate tax cut that the ucp are introducing is it's basically just foreshadowing future cuts to public services that will undoubtedly be recommended by the blue ribbon panel that's uh that's chaired by janice mckinnon um yeah i think that sums it up i i, I i'm like i i'm a bit i'm a bit frustrated <laughs> on a number of fronts with uh with this bill, um, even though it's no surprise, and they've been, you know, foreshadowing their plan to kickstart the economy through corporate tax cuts for well, ever since Jason Kenney's been leader. Um, I was doing a bit of research outside of the Alberta context um, on corporate income tax cuts and the, you know, the evidence that you know is there, isn't there, that it actually creates jobs and stimulates the economy in ways that is, I think, resonant with Albertans, um, which is like it's going to bring back fifty-five thousand jobs. Um, according to Jack Mintz and one of his colleagues at the Fraser Institute, um, that's uh, that's a great big number. Uh, we like big round numbers when we talk about things in political terms, uh, and I think it was resonant um, with Albertans. 
Um, generally, I guess based on UCP's research, it was very, very popular um, because you're promising something that uh, sounds great. It's very hard to prove though. And so I was going back and looking at uh, Trump's uh, 2017 bill. I think that was like a, a massive give to you know corporate America to the tune of like $1 trillion or something close to that. And um, over two years, you know, independent research from the Congressional Research Committee and others have shown that the results aren't there uh, when it comes to job creation um, and, you know, increased wages and benefits to, to working people um, over about two years since that time. And so I don't know what it is. I mean, and, and this is not, I mean, we've had this conversation before, you know, in passing Dave and we, we've talked about it with, with lots of other people. It sort of seems like since the eighties, the, the, the proof is not in the pudding when it comes to the idea of, you know, trickle down economics and massive giveaways from governments to corporations when it comes to things that matter to, to working people and, and working families. And yet, again, this goes back to the theme of, you know, Jason Kenney's government being true believers in this ideology. Um, that doesn't seem to matter. And so you find out, you, you know, you find the two economists who will say 55,000 jobs will be created. And, and you say, these are the two of the most respective economists in their field. And, you know, they're economists, so it must be true. Uh, even though you have a great debate amongst, you know, political economists uh, across the country and beyond, who would tell you, uh, you know, maybe this isn't the best way to stimulate the economy. And there are, you know, examples that have shown that it, that, that it hasn't been as successful as, you know, um, people might say. And so it'll be interesting. One thing that I would really love to see, and I, I, I don't think we will, but it might be interesting for the opposition to suggest this and sort of turn something on its head that we heard all the time was, if you're increasing the minimum wage in October, you should do an economic impact analysis uh, over the preceding year leading into it to see if you know, you're going to be killing jobs or not. Why are you afraid of economic impact analyses? And we were like, well, Grant Hunter, uh, tell us what that means and what that would look like and we'll do it. We have all this research from Stats Canada and brilliant, beautiful research from Alberta Labor uh, that shows, you know, uh, different labor trends. And uh, we did a lot of, you know, kind of uh, studies that have shown in Seattle and other places when you increase the minimum wage, it doesn't kill jobs in the same way that you're going to. But sure, let's do an economic impact analysis. I would love to see the Blue Ribbon panel suggest to the government that they do an economic impact analysis of uh, what's going to happen every year when they decrease uh, corporate taxes. Because I think even the finance minister said, we could very well be in the hole um, uh, in terms of revenue um, for the province, even after four years, uh, even if you know it does kickstart the economy in the way that we we hope that it does and expect to, uh, to the tune of about a billion dollars. I don't know if he said that or someone said it in you know in response to him saying we don't fully expect to be, uh, you know, making more money than we're losing based on this tax cut. And so, yeah, it feels ideological to me. Um, I'm concerned that. Um, it's going to happen no matter what over four years um, and that we're not going to see 55,000 new jobs. It's, it's, and we will, I hope, in this province see that many new jobs over four years. For goodness sakes, I hope so. But if you look at like other economists who are, you know, let have less skin in the game in Alberta, they'll tell you it has a lot more to do with the price of oil in Alberta. Exactly. exactly. And a lot more to do with other, you know, economic uh, conditions than it does with you know, the tax, the corporate tax rate. So yeah, yeah, I mean, and that's it. You get back to the price of oil. That's really what I mean. That's really what's causing <laughs> causing our problems in terms of of the economy in current in terms of uh, in terms of revenue for government because they are so over reliant on it. So yeah, I mean, it really goes back to to something that we have absolutely no control over, which is the international price of oil. Um, what one of the uh, uh, 
I'll, I'll post a link to this on on the on the website when we post this podcast. But the uh, This American Life had a great uh, podcast a few years ago about basically about how difficult it was, how difficult it is for government to create private sector jobs. And they basically, I think they, I think it was Scott Walker in Wisconsin they tracked, and his prom, his big campaign promise was he was going to create two hundred and fifty thousand jobs in Wisconsin by basically cutting cutting the heck out of government and, and cutting taxes. And I think they gave Foxconn like a four point one billion dollar tax subsidy or something like that. And I think it ended up creating like six thousand jobs. Like it, it was it was some like totally minuscule number, but they did this whole they went through this whole program of of. Uh, of of cutting public services and cutting rights for unions and cutting taxes for corporations and it, and it had like a, a a very minor ended up having a very minor impact on the when you actually like track the amount of jobs that were created because of that um so i'll post uh, i'll post a link to it it's yeah. a fast it's a fascinating podcast they really, they really did like a deep dive into it that, and uh it's this american life so they did a it's very well produced and they did a great great job love that show that's great i didn't i didn't realize that he, they, they did that kind of thing man like that's two hundred fifty thousand jobs being promised from a corporate tax cut from walker um that's a that's a lot of jobs in a smallish state there's got to be what like three five seven million people in that in that it's, state it's i don't know how i don't know exactly what the population of wisconsin is but that probably sounds right it's not a it's, it's probably not. like an alberta sized population so Wow. Yeah. No, I'd love to see that podcast for sure. Um, interesting. Scott Walker, he's, he's done now. Hey, yeah, you can find they, they finally defeated him. They retired him. <laughs> finally. After being interviewed by the RCMP attorney general, Doug Schweitzer has finally caved to pressure and appointed a special prosecutor to handle the ongoing investigation into the 2017 United conservative party leadership race, which has, I think led to, more than seventy thousand, around seventy thousand dollars in fines being issued uh, by the elections commissioner, uh, and separate investigations uh, being conducted by the RCMP. This seems to be something that the UCP cannot shake. Uh, I think that it seemed that that, that Schweitzer's uh, strategy and the UCP strategy was kind of ignore it uh, and hope it goes away. But uh, but this doesn't seem like it's like it's going anywhere. It's, I mean, it doesn't seem like it's going away. It seems like it's it's it, this is going to continue to be an issue with uh, mm -hmm. for the UCP going into the summer. What what do you think, Brad? I think that it's going to haunt them into the summer and then beyond. It's interesting. I think uh, Justice Minister uh, Doug Schweitzer is is probably not having a great couple first weeks here, and he's really been thrown into the fire. Uh, I've been saying no, 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 and then something happened. Um, I don't really have too much insight into it, but I think that um, you know they had no choice. So kudos to the opposition and for Rachel Notley um, being such a hard nosed, uh, you know, former lawyer uh, who can really put people's you know feet to the to the fire uh, for continuing to bang that drum and finally getting them to go there. Uh, I think it's going to dog them for a long time. This is not a good story for them. It didn't have the impact that we were hoping, uh, the NDP was hoping for uh, going into the election, but, um, but I don't think it's done. And, uh, you know, like corruption uh, narratives have kind of a slow burn and they tend to uh, they they tend to um, really leave a bad taste in the vote in the, in the minds of voters, and I think that you're going to see it stick around for a long, long time. Especially if there's an independent process and prosecutor who has to come in and get to know the players and and really dig deep. 
Um, it's going to take a long time for this to unfold, and it's going to be really fun to watch <laughs> for for me and for a lot of other people. Uh, you know, and you have other conservative insiders too, like Brian Jean at the time, who was comment commenting several months ago uh, about uh, you know his views on the leadership race and feeling like it was not fair and pointing people in the direction of uh, some of the things and the allegations that uh, were going on. So it cuts, uh, I think, across different conservatives. Uh, and, you know, there's uh, there's some bad blood there, obviously. Um, and I wonder what it means for, for loyalty for a lot of people in the long term. So, yeah, we'll see where it goes. It's anybody's guess, but uh, kudos to the opposition for getting them to finally cave and uh and and appointing that special prosecutor uh, i think it's a good thing for for our democracy and and for the process to have someone from the outside i, I think rachel said you know rachel notley said a government cannot investigate itself and and that's that's true and so i think it's it's good we'll see where it goes uh and uh it's gonna be fun to watch <laughs> it's gonna be a a tough one for a lot of people so yeah and yeah. I, I, it, it was interesting before because i mean you know, I think it was the Schweitzer announced that the RCMP had had met with him for half an hour, and then Notley came out and called for the appointment of a special prosecutor. And then it was almost unanimous among the kind of the media commentators. You had everyone from David Klimenhaga, Don Braid, Keith Keith Jaron, all calling on, uh, basically saying that like it's totally unacceptable, like it's 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 a it's a no brainer to appoint someone to uh, like someone who's independent to basically handle this file. I mean, Schweitzer when he was running for the UCP leadership race raised issues and raised, publicly raised concerns about like the legitimacy of the vote he had they had questions about transparency and 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 whether the vote was 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 legit in terms of the vote how, how the, the voting structure and the voting system was legitimate um it, it just seemed like a no-brainer and then they kind of tried to, to to dodge the issue for a few weeks and then and then finally it uh, i mean it became so so absolutely apparent that they needed to appoint someone independent uh, to, to handle this file i i think it will be it will be very interesting to see where this goes. Um, I mean, one of the things that that has kind of bugged me about this whole issue. I mean, it, it is such an insider baseball issue. Up until like up and basically up until now, when it basically impact now now it's impacting government how how government operates. Now it's impacting the, the political players. It, it's still kind of an insider issue, um, but it is a, an ethics and obviously. Uh, legal there are legal issues if the RCMP if it, potential legal issues uh, if the RCMP are investigating and and the elections commissioner doesn't seem to be uh, to be uh, giving them any slack he's like a, a dog after a bone um, one of the things that I think will be interesting and I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before is how basically what's the lifespan of this elections commissioner uh, the UCP were back when they were the wild rose uh, were they voiced, they, they voiced some pretty strong opposition to the creation of the Office of the Elections Commissioner at all. Like, I, I, so I was assuming going into the election, looking at the UCP forming government, uh, that one of the things that they would do would be basically to dissolve the Office of the Elections Commissioner as part of their red tape or part of their you know blue ribbon government restructuring panel. Um, but now they're kind of in a position where I don't know if they politically can basically just dissolve the office of the elections commissioner with all these investigations and all these fines going on. Like it, would, it, 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 it you know, it, 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 it would be very, I think it'd be very difficult for them to do that without looking, uh, looking incredibly shady. 
I don't think they can do it now. I think they find a way to get rid of the elections commissioner uh, in the future if um, this uh, this process finds that uh, you know no charges will be laid and and uh, it's not too messy despite a lack of charges in terms of the the story and and what comes out about what really happened in the leadership race. But I was surprised as well. I mean, I it's so funny, Dave. I was thinking about him uh, the other day when there was a, a new clerk appointed after Merwin Saher was uh, shown the door um, pretty unceremoniously or quickly. And, um, you know, that's, that's even more insider baseball. Um, but um, I thought that the election commissioner would be sort of first on that list of... Um, you know, independent officers who tend to, uh, you know, stick around uh, beyond the election of new governments. Uh, but Alberta's never really had this sort of history of, you know, um, new governments. And then what happens with, um, you know, executive management, uh, deputy ministers, independent officers at the end of their terms, um, and the question about how the government of the day makes appointments that are nonpartisan, um, but uh, but finds the people who will do a, a good job uh, and that they can work with, so to speak. And so I think that uh, when it comes to the election commissioner, they you're right, they cannot get rid of them now. Um, but good lord, would they love to? They would love for that guy to go away um, because he's been nothing but uh, he's been nothing but uh, trouble. Um, uh, for them, uh, from a political point of view, I think he's levied like I don't know. Is it like over a hundred thousand dollars in fines? Not maybe not that much. It, I think it's about seventy thousand dollars in fines so far. Okay, yeah, which is, which is like not insignificant. That's like that's a big deal. It is uh, for a first-time commissioner. I mean, those powers and those fines uh, didn't exist prior to the the previous government bringing in this this officer, uh, and uh, and so it's significant. You're right, though. They cannot get rid of him now. There's no way. So now it's that time of the show where we dig into the Dave Berta podcast mailbag. Uh, we've got a few questions today, starting with this one from Dan McDonald on Twitter. And Dan asks, how is the creation of a youth wage, not age discrimination under the charter? So what do you think, Brad? We'll start with you. Uh, that's a really good question. How How is it not age discrimination under the charter? I um, I think that it is, uh, according to um, Section 15 of the Charter. I'm not a constitutional lawyer like the the former liberal leader, so uh, I don't know the stuff. <laughs> no, 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 it was a constitutional law lawyer, wasn't that it? Constitutional law lawyer, to be very specifically redundant. Um, but, uh, but I think it is. Uh, everyone has the right to equal protection and benefit under the law, uh, regardless of age, gender, um, and all of the other grounds that someone might be discriminated against by, by an employer or somebody else uh, in this great country of ours. Um, so I think, uh, I think that it is, but of course there's that, there's that test, um, you know, uh, under section one, is it justifiable essentially under section one of the charter? Um, and arguably, I think that any challenge would be unsuccessful. Um, and, you know, youth differentials and, and other wage differentials have existed in different places, including in Alberta up until 1998. Ontario still has one, I believe. Um, and so uh, there's a lot of past precedent. And I think that you could make uh, an argument if you had to uh, as a government that it is justifiable. You could make an argument. I don't know. I don't think it's fair, but I don't think that it would uh, it would be a successful uh, challenge. Ultimately, that's that's my gut. 
Dave, anything to add to that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not a constitutional law lawyer either, but uh, I, I, I'd be interested to look at other provinces that also have uh, youth wages, and maybe even in Alberta before the 2015 election that had different wages for different wages for workers in certain sectors uh, to see if there were any challenges before. From what I understand, now, if there are any constitutional law lawyers out there listening to the podcast, please correct me. But from what I understand, Alberta's Human Rights Code permits some different rules for minors. So that could be a, that could be uh, uh, a challenge for anyone who wants to basically challenge us as a as a charter challenge. So well, I guess we'll see. But it'd be interesting to see if if, if this has been taken up in other provinces already. Yeah. yeah. All right. Our next question. We've got actually three questions from Spencer O'Hara on Twitter. So let's start with this one. Can government backbenchers have any role other than being a yes man for the government? Uh, Spencer says that his MLA sits right at the back and that he would like to know what she could do that would be of significance. Dave, any tips there for uh, Spencer or yeah, Spencer's MLA? Uh, I don't know. Fle fle flex your freedom muscles, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, it's it's it, it depends what, what you... Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, it's a hard question, hard question to answer. Uh, we talked about this a bit already. Government backbenchers are very much subservient to the executive. Uh, there are, you know, there are opportunities for backbenchers to uh, to do their own thing, to introduce private members' bills if their name gets called up, to speak out on certain issues. But you know, a lot of backbenchers are, are significantly impacted, so it's significantly limited in terms of of the kind of freedom that they might have to play a, a legislative role or a bigger political role. Um, I think that there's a lot of backbenchers, especially in this government, that are probably just trying to figure out where the bathrooms are still and trying to figure out what their roles are. So maybe we'll see, uh, you know, groups of backbenchers band together and, and try to push certain agendas or certain issues. I think that we'll probably see something like that. Um, uh, or we might see something like that. But, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd say wait and see. I'm not, as, as I said before, I'm not really uh, optimistic about the 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 independence of of private members and and uh in in the alberta legislature in in this session and in the future but you know they they can always revolt they they can do that it's happened before brad what do you think uh i think that backbenchers would be best served by uh, uh figuring out where the bathrooms are learning how to write questions making sure they have their phones turned on and their voicemails connected uh staffing up their offices i imagine there's a lot of MLAs right now who are still hiring their full-time constituency assistants and part-time staff. And um, and they should spend the summer uh, out there in their constituencies and connecting with uh, voters, like the one who wrote in and, and saying like, well, what do you want to hear from me in the legislature? But I think when it comes to legislative process and getting things done and that frustration that obviously comes through in this question, it's... Um, Unfortunately, it's it's hard to be optimistic about things getting better uh, and opposition members having more independence and abilities to move things through the House. And it's already tough. It's already tough. So um, I think, uh, you know, maybe maybe there'll be revolts uh, in the in the government caucus. Maybe there will be some people who, who cross the floor or move. Uh, down the aisle and sit independently. We've seen that before. And people out of frustration do that because they they understand their job is first and foremost to represent their constituents. So um, yeah, yeah. So not much that can be done there. Uh, <laughs> Spencer's next question uh, is, which MLAs or ministers have been doing a good job in this session and which would you say could use improvement? Uh, Spencer is seeing critiques and praise for different people on both sides of the aisle and would like your input. Note, 
this session started on May 21st. So we, we've only been at it for seven days so far. So what do you guys think? Brad, are you seeing anyone that's that's blowing your mind right now? Yeah, I am seeing a few people who are blowing my mind in good ways and bad ways. Um, in good ways, uh, I would say that MLA Janice Irwin in the opposition ranks is blowing my mind. Uh, she's performing really well uh, in the house and she is sort of, she's able, to, she's been able to like make some issues really pop on social media and outside of the house. And I think she's going to fit really well uh, within her new role that she's been given uh, as a critic. Um, and uh, I also think that uh, MLA Racky Pancholi, uh, another new one, is uh is someone to watch uh over the next four years for sure and you're right like we have to be careful it's been it's been a couple weeks and so it's easy for me to sit here uh and lean back and say oh you know that person in question period very very poor performance when they've never been inside the legislature before <laughs> and we have to remember these are people at the end of the day and so that i think they're all going to learn a lot over the next session the next couple of years um but i do have to say really quickly too like it's interesting Gosh, did you watch that scrum uh, by the health minister Tyler Shandro? Yes, um, yes. He had he had he had like one half of a talking point to work from. In, I, in, I felt, in due course. <laughs> in due course. In due course. You know, we had good conversations with the two individuals, and uh, we'll be answering those questions in due course. And he said it about twenty times, and it was it was obviously frustrating for the press gallery to to hear that, and they're used to the talking points, but. When there's three or four of them, yeah, at least it seems like maybe you're you're trying to get at the heart of an issue and respond uh, earnestly and genuinely to something. But man, that was a bad scrum. So I don't know. I haven't seen much else from him otherwise. Uh, and that's obviously tough, your first scrum. But you got to have a couple more talking points than that, I think. I, I, I think in due course, uh, Minister Shandro will be doing some media training. I think in due course he in, will. In in, in due course, uh, uh, the the just just to echo uh, one of the comments that Brad made, I think that uh, I was so I was watching. I don't even remember what I was watching, but I turned on the 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 online video with the legislature, and I think they were talking about like debating standing orders or something. But Racky Pancholi really impressed me. I thought she she was she was basically standing up with no notes, uh, incredibly confident. This is her first. She's a new MLA. It's her first time in, in you know her first week or two in the legislature, uh, and she had a really uh, a really impressive command of of the issues. A really impressive command of the floor. Um, I was I was quite impressed, um, and I think that she'll definitely be one to watch. Janice Irwin as well, um, uh, who's my MLA in Highlands Norwood, who's awesome. Uh, I think uh, she, she's doing great. Um, uh, but but overall, I think it's uh, we just have to wait and see. Like you said, it's been two weeks. Um, some of them will do great. Some of them will be mediocre. Some of them will fail. Uh, you know, in the in the first session, uh, or you know, or not do well and stumble. Uh, but uh, it, this is really uh, a, a period where they're kind of finding their feet. And uh, and I, I always find it interesting when when you have such a big turnover in the legislature, who steps up and who excels because it's not not always who you expect. Uh, yeah, yeah. One last question from Spencer, and I know you guys talked about this uh, in the discussion earlier. Uh, Spencer wants to know, can the opposition table private members' bills? And how do you think the NDP MLAs may or may not use private members' bill in the next bills in the next four years? Uh, did, did, did you reach a definitive conclusion on what the what's allowed here? We'll start with you, Brad. Yeah. I don't think we did figure out exactly what's what's allowed yet. And I don't know if the the changes to standing orders have 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 happened or passed through. Uh, but I think they eventually will, which will change the way that private members' bills 
at least pass through the entire process, if not change the way that they're introduced and when on Mondays. Um, I will say this, though, I think the opposition specifically will use private member members' bills as a way to introduce um, ideas into the legislature as a caucus, in the sense that they'll have good discussions at caucus about the things that they want to put forward and the narratives they want to build, uh, and that private members' bills will be... Um, you know, uh, uh, a means to do that, a tactic to do that. And so it'll be, you know, a private member who is on the top of the bill sponsored by MLA Chris Nielsen, but it'll be an issue that uh, is of import to the entire caucus and something they feel like they can, they can uh, score political points on, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Dave, anything to add on private member bills question? Yeah, I mean, there's examples of opposition. Uh, you know, I mean, a lot, a lot of private members' bills you, you don't really hear about. They never, they never really make the media. But there are examples of, of private members' bills that do uh, really shape the agenda. The, the one that really sticks in my mind is, uh, I don't, I, I don't remember what the number of the bill was, but it was the bill, the GSA bill introduced by Lori Blakeman when she was a Liberal MLA ahead of the 2015 election. I think it was 2014 when they, when they introduced this, and it, and it really, um, it really shaped the agenda, and it really, really knocked the the PC government back on their heels and it forced them to uh, to respond and they ended up responding with their own bill and then and then uh, spiking her bill but it really Lori Blakeman really succeeded in in setting the narrative for that entire session because GSAs were the biggest issue and they continued to be a big issue for a number of years so I mean that that's a key example I, I think a perfect example of, of uh, how opposition can use private members bills on uh, on to set the agenda and set the narrative on these issues. Well, we'll see what happens over this next session. We have one last question from Andy Smith on Facebook, and he asks, what portfolios, if any, would you reallocate between federal, provincial, and municipal jurisdictions? For example, should education be under federal control so as to limit barriers to movement within Canada? What do you guys think? If you, if you could sort of change the way all orders of government functioned, how would you reallocate some of those responsibilities? Let's start with you, Dave. Well, well, this is one of those those funny kind of history political science questions where you know the those uh, all all those uh, uh, wealthy white men uh, who were probably drinking too much whiskey uh, sitting in Charlottetown in uh, in eighteen sixty seven or eighteen sixty six whenever the Charlottetown conference ended up being um, you know the the what was important to them and you know a lot a lot of what what's in provincial and federal jurisdiction now is was what was what was the most important back then so federal jurisdiction over things like the railroad and the waterways uh, and provincial jurisdiction over things that didn't really exist in 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 in, uh, in terms of public services how we know them now like healthcare and education uh, became provincial issue or you know fell eventually fell under and became provincial issues uh, I, th I think there's a strong argument to make uh, that advanced education, that post-secondary education, uh, could be should be a federal should be put under federal jurisdiction. Um, I think that it's it ends up being a hodgepodge across the across the country. Um, I mean, I think healthcare, education, uh, environment. I think those are those are kind of three areas that uh, that I think that as a national, uh, there's a national interest in Canada doing well. And uh, and I mean, you got to think about what. In what context does it make sense for us to be one nation? In what context does it make sense for Canada to be kind of ten fiefdom, provincial fiefdoms, and on, on what issues? And I think those are those are kind of three issues that that I I think would make sense to re to to reallocate responsibilities or or increase responsibilities on on a certain level. On on education, I think it would be interesting. One of the things that always that always frustrates me is urban planning and how municipalities in Alberta do urban planning. And I'm not sure it's the, this, I'm not sure what the situation is in other provinces, but the fact that like 
school boards and the pro school boards like fall under funding. They're their own entity, but they're under the jurisdiction of the province and municipalities are their own entities, but they're under, under a different jurisdiction in the province. And the way we plan our cities, they all kind of exist separately. It would make so much sense to kind of bring school, you know, education school boards and municipalities under kind of the same umbrella uh, because planning schools is such a huge part of, uh, of urban planning and where people live in our cities. So that's kind of my role. And, and affordable housing as well. It makes sense. Um, I mean, we've already seen municipalities like the city of Edmonton step up uh, where the federal and provincial governments have sometimes fallen uh, on issues like housing and homelessness. Uh, so mm -hmm. that, yeah. Brad, what do you think? How would you, uh, how would you remodel government? It's such a great question. It's intimidating because it's just like it's uh, it's a big one. Um, but I, you know, I think we all have. You know, I have some thoughts about about what the interesting debates are right now on on this subject. I think, well, Dave, to your point, like I think uh, you know, national affordable housing strategy is something that's been part of the debate within certain political parties for you know a generation or longer, and the response by governments at different levels has not been uh, has not been uh, strong enough and I think that the coordination of uh, of that effort is is something that needs to be uh, needs to be much better um, and that it has a national importance but um, the real problems in terms of getting traction for municipality by municipalities for the other orders of government is really I think frustrating for for those city councils um, that are really trying to take it seriously but just don't have the the funds to be able to to really respond to the problem that we have there um, especially in you know well in Alberta too but especially in cities like Vancouver and Toronto and and all the whole host of issues that go along with affordable housing um, so that that sticks out for me as something that we need to do a better job of at least in coordination I'm not sure if that means you take it out of the hands of any government and then put it into one to make it more simple or if uh, it's just kind of my general frustration at how that that issue has been tackled by all levels um but uh well i mean geez on this question the ones that stick out in my mind are the ones that are the, the biggest hot potatoes right now like obviously um the way that um we are able to as a country and different orders of government uh get on board with energy infrastructure projects that cross borders um uh, what do we really think about the NEV and how it should be reformed or not um, and uh, timelines for approvals. And then in response to those approvals, um, how the, the process and challenges uh, in the courts by different, by, you know, individuals and actors really slows things down again. Uh, I think that's a legitimate frustration that people have. It doesn't really respond directly to the question, but I think that there are people who would say that, um, that uh, that should be simplified and given to one order of government so that we could just be done with those uh, those approvals much more quickly and reduce red tape, uh, so to speak, uh, when it comes to energy infrastructure, um, because there's a lot of frustration there. And then the other one that comes to mind is like, you know, the city charter debate in Alberta um, and how the province uh, gets along with and works with our big cities um, and the ability for those cities to uh, do things like generate revenue. Um, and uh, and that's that's another hot potato. But uh, so I maybe I'm going to just hedge on this one, uh, uh, you know, and say I'm not sure. But there are good debates about uh, ongoing debates about uh, the frustrations people have with who's in charge of what. And I think you'll continue to see those uh, develop and in interesting ways in, in Alberta when it comes to energy, for sure, in the next few years. Um, well, thanks for your answers, uh, gentlemen, and thanks to our mailbag uh, contributors, Dan, Spencer, and Andy. Those were great questions. And that's it for this episode. 
Thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks to our producer, Adam Rosenhart, for helping put the show together. And a huge thanks to the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, for supporting the show. Send us your feedback or ask any questions you have for our next episode. You can get us on Twitter at, at DaveBerta or on the DaveBerta Facebook page, or you can email us at podcast at DaveBerta.ca. A huge thanks to Brad LaFortune for joining us today. It was great to have you on the pod, man. Absolutely. No problem. It was fun to be here. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks so much, Brad. You're welcome. And uh, we're going to be taking a bit of a break from the pod as Dave and I take vacations with our families, not together, separately. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll be back at it probably around mid-July. So until then, so long, everyone, and thanks for listening. <laughs>